in tennis has never played the perfect tennis set in his own mind. And he plays it not against Djokovic and Nadal, he plays it against himself. And it's that sense of getting better even day, even the sort of crazy high level he's at that is deeply motivating. So if you do that, and one of the things that it's, it's really apparent now in modern work is that mastery is more and more about the human aspects, what we do, not the technical aspects. So if you talk to an accountant nowadays, really, yes, they need to get the accounts on time each month and make sure they're accurate. But what matters much more is, are they able to work with the rest of the business or the organization to ensure that the numbers they're producing are being used intelligently by the management and leadership to, to have better spending decisions or manage the company or organization better? So a lot of mastery is that broader mastery to think about, and it's often what's not on our job description. Welcome to the Big Careers Small Children podcast, formerly known as Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I am the CEO and founder of the social enterprise Leaders Plus and your host for this podcast. As the regular listeners know, I have set up this podcast and our award-winning social enterprise Leaders Plus because I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support because I believe more of us should be able to go to really senior leadership in order for the world to be a better place. And I think hopefully through this podcast, I can give you some inspiration and practical support to do so, so you can progress your career with joy whilst enjoying your young children in a way that works for you. So today I've got someone very interesting for you. His name is Sharath Jeevan. He is a best-selling author and an absolute expert when it comes to motivation and to purpose. And As you know, I've been thinking about purpose a fair bit recently, and I think there is something at the moment in the world in that many of us have really questioned over the pandemic about where we're spending our time and how we can make the time that we do spend at work as high impact as possible. And Shara spends some time explaining to us the different ways we can do that, both in your current work and also just sharing his story of how we started several NGOs, how you spend time innovating and raised, I think, almost a billion pounds with an entrepreneurship at eBay for charity. So very, very interesting person. And I hope you'll find it insightful and useful. So if you're listening to this, you will be enjoying festivities, potentially if you're Christian, in which case I wish you very, very happy holidays and hope you have a wonderful time. And if part of your New Year's resolution is to connect with other people, is to be, I guess, more in the driving seat when it comes to your career and if you do want to progress your career, then please consider applying for the next cohort of our Leaders Plus Fellowship Programme. If you go to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship, um, then you'll find all the information that you need to join us. Um, there are also a couple of free events at the moment that you can um, join us with and it will be lovely to see you there. Um, enjoy today's conversation. So a very warm welcome, Sharat, to the podcast. I am really, really thrilled to have you. I think your work is so topical at the moment. Why don't we start with you introducing yourself, your family, and what you do for work? Thanks, Rina. I'm Sharat Jeevan. I'm the author, as you mentioned, of a recent book called Intrinsic, A Manifesto to Reignite Our Inner Drive. Just became a bestseller on Amazon last month as well, on Kindle and so on, which is really exciting. But more importantly, I think my work is really about how we can find inner motivation, intrinsic motivation, if you use the lingo, 
in everything we do, from our work lives to our personal lives. I cut my teeth through working in this issue around education, but now work with a range of leaders and organizations, helping them apply these concepts all around the world. But as you said, equally important to my entity is I'm a parent and a husband, and I grapple with many of these things at the dining table every day with my kids, and how do we keep them motivated and engaged in life, in relationships, and very, very interested in the link between our professional and personal lives at the same time. So I'm really excited about the conversation today. And how old are your children? They're 10 and 7, so it's an interesting age. Yeah, so they're a little bit older than mine. I'm imagining that at the time when they're 10 and 7, everything's very easy and life is not complicated anymore at all. Is that, can you just, you know, <laughs> no, I, should, I shouldn't make, make jokes. I presume it's still... No, no, I think it's, I think it's very easier for sure. Things like sleep and some of those basic things. And my both my boys are you know, fairly independent, fairly passionate about life, which also makes life a lot easier and more fun. I guess one of the things, that, as we sort of think about that transition from childhood to adolescence, all these other things come in the fore. And I think there's often these tensions of how do you think as a parent? How do you motivate your kids? What motivates us as parents as well? So maybe not easier, but there are different kinds of challenges, maybe it's how I describe it. This may have nothing to do with your work, but it just came to my mind. Do you think as a result of your work on motivation, you have a different approach to creating joy as a family or not really? Very much so. Rina. So, so you know, I, I'm the son of immigrant parents to the UK and I'm very lucky to have very, very committed parents who made many sacrifices us, you know, even to leave India. I'm originally Indian to come to the UK and take up onto a new country, a new future, all of these things, and, and obviously to, to give us a better life. So we'll always be eternally grateful for my parents for that, that sacrifice. And like many, I think, immigrant parents, really making sure we had security and stepped up was very, very important to them as well. And again, I you know, really benefited from that. I think one of the things I'm thinking a lot about, though, is is that are the mental models that I grew up as a child relevant for children today? And I explore this a lot in the book, and I'm more and more skeptical that's the case. And I think the world that parents grew up in was what I would call a kind world. You know, a world where, no, I wouldn't say easy, but there were technical solutions, stable solutions to some of our biggest problems out there. The world we're growing up in, as these, these last day, 20 months have shown, and again, there's a new variant just uh, just a few weeks ago. It's a wicked world where so much more is uncertain. You can't be confident about it. And the kind of childhood I think my kids need is very different from the childhood I got and I needed, you know, 30 years ago or so or 35 years ago. And I think it's just that question of how as parents do we accept that and, and take the positive aspects of that, not get freaked out by the, the complications this throws up. But how do we try and reset our thinking on parenting? That's a big aspect of the book and my, my work practically as well. Yeah, so you don't mean wicked in terms of an evil word. You mean wicked in terms of it's really complex. There are no simple solutions. It's not like you work hard, you get good grades, you get a good job, and that's you settled for life and you'll be happy in that. Exactly. So, so wicked, not in a sort of judgmental way, but if you look at you know, what happened last year, look at, you know, we went to Mars, right? Like it was pretty amazing to have that human feet. I'd call that an amazing accomplishment but a kind one, ultimately. Right? There was a way of programming a probe that went into to Mars. Black Lives Matter happened a few days afterwards, and that's ultimately wicked. Right? There is no easy solution to tackle racial injustice or inequality or any of these kinds of things. These are the kind of problems we're going to have to grapple with, and our young people are going to have to spend their working lives and personal lives grappling with as well. So yeah, very much in, in that sort of sense of it. And 
I think what you said was very important about that ladder of, of, of security. So the mental model I grew up with as a child was that if I worked really hard, if I went to good schools, um, good universities, I went to Cambridge and Oxford and so on, you know, I'd get this great job. And then really the rest of life was a cakewalk. It was a you know, very smooth, you know, smooth sailing life that all would be fine. I went to Cambridge and Oxford. Um, this is my fourth or fifth career, depending on the definition. I had to reinvent myself multiple times, many setbacks, things have worked, things have failed at times. And the idea of life being a zigzag rather than a straight line is a big aspect of what I'm finding in my research on motivation. And the question is, how do we really motivate young people and kids to, to enjoy and revel in that zigzag and not to get scared of it? So it's a very different world than the one I grew up in. And I think our parenting models have got to change as a result. Mm. I am intrigued. So what do you do differently with your kids compared to what your parents might have done? So my, my son is now, my older one is 10, and he's applying for a secondary school right now. And, you know, I guess many parents would probably look at the league tables, right, of schools and say, you know, these schools are in the top. I'm going to put my son in the, the school, which has the highest position in the league table. And I did this when he was in primary school, and I realized the, all the problems that happened with that. You know, most of the time, just take them to being very practical because you asked me that right now, but often, you know, schools do well on league tables because they just select kids much more aggressively. And what they're just measuring really is the, is the intelligence of the child when they came into the school, not what the school has done to help them develop and get to a place they wouldn't have got to otherwise. So for me, what's really important is, I'm in this sort of very um, interesting phase of choosing a school, helping him choose the school he wants to go I'm thinking about, look, what does he need now in the next seven, eight years of his life? He's 10, it's a secondary school. And for me, I want a school that really tries to nurture a love of learning for him. Because the world he's going to grow up in is one where lifelong learning is not a, a nice time. It's an essential part of being And I want him to look at exams and attainment and all these academic hoops to make our kids jump through, not as something that defines him. But if you like a necessary evil, he's got to do it. I talk about it in the book as a hygiene factor. But what I want to deeply motivate him is really that sense of a love of learning and a sense of purpose for his learning. How is he going to use everything he does in school in a way that fundamentally helps and serves others? That sense of autonomy, how is he going to feel he can be in control of his education and drive things and learn things the way he wants to not be spoon-fed between activity to activity? And I think the pandemic helped in many ways in this. And then mastery, I want him to feel that He's becoming a better and better version of himself every day, both in his studies, but also in his wider life in terms of the activities he's involved in, the leadership things he does, the friends he meets, all of these things. So it's an element of how does it bring out the best in him rather than trying to look at a narrow set of league tables and make a judgment on that. That's just one example of some of the things that give a different I think that is really beautiful. Put. And there's always that internal struggle, isn't it, by... Should you go with the rat race? And because you know all the other parents are going for the top in the league table school and you're judging yourself, oh, maybe you should be going for that. But then sticking to your own values, I think is very impressive. Um, you mentioned that word purpose. And I think that's a very important word right now because, of course, as so many friends of mine in the pandemic, they suddenly reevaluated what the purpose is of what they're doing. And I'm just really interested. You mentioned you have a, had a zigzag career. Have you had any moments where you lost that purpose in what you're doing, even though you are a motivation expert? 
<laughs> no, no, of course, we all have to do that. And yeah, so many times, but I think, you know, for example, I left the corporate, I worked for them for 10 years in the corporate world. I learned a lot. I worked in top tier strategy consulting firms. I worked for groups like eBay and so on. And it was an incredible education. I learned a lot. I, I developed a lot. I did wonder that at the end of the day when I went back to back home after a long day at work and a hard day, right? These jobs are not easy jobs, as we know. How was I really helping and serving others at the end of it? And for me, that was a bit of a wake up call to say, look, there's not, you know, I think every job has purpose. And what I was doing was helping people. But often there would tend to be bigger companies or people that were already rich and helping to get a little bit richer and so on as well. So for me, that was a profound realization that I wanted to really spend, you know, spending the last 15 years of my life focused on those who don't have those advantages. And I set up two, two education NGOs or charities, one in the UK, which tried to take up an MBA model. I have an MBA from INSEAD in France to inner city schools in this country and help teachers that got promoted into leadership roles for this time become better leaders and managers. That got expanded by the government to all, all eligible schools in this country. And I worked with the Obama administration to bring it to this US as well. The last 10 years, I've been founding an organization called STIR Education, which is all about reigniting the motivation of teachers in emerging countries like India, Uganda, Indonesia, and working with governments there that reached about 35,000 schools and about 7 million children. But I think for me, it was just a really amazing chance to leave the corporate rat race that I'd been trained to go on, I guess, because of my education, do something different. And it was very strange. I'd go to these you know, parties where most people had gone also to Oxford or Cambridge or these high-flown schools, and people say, what do you do? And you'd be talking to some VP at Goldman Sachs or a director at Xerox or whatever it was, and they'd give me a strange look sometimes as well. And it took me a while for me to figure my own identity because it was very easy to judge yourself on status and think, you know, I'm not in playing in the same game my friends are playing in or my classmates and so on as well. What I realized over time, though, is they were actually jealous of me because I was doing something I loved doing. I was free to do that. I was making a difference in the world. I think all of us want these things. But I think we often get very, it's very easy to get trapped, I think, in a lifestyle that is all about status and money. And I'm not saying these are not important. I think we need to manage against them and figure out what do we need to live well and a good life? What does status mean for each of us? But I think it's easy to get trapped on that treadmill. It's very, very difficult to come off. So I feel lucky that I had a wife that was supportive of me doing that, taking a few risks along the way. So it sounds like you found your purpose, sorry to be cheesy, but you, you did that by founding those NGOs, by leaving the rat race, as you call it. Do you think you have to leave in order to find your purpose? Is there a way that you can find purpose within your existing work, even if it is in a Goldman Sachs type environment? Yeah, yes, absolutely. We, we look, we, we need the world needs people in Goldman Sachs. It also needs people to set up charities and education. So we need all kinds of people in the world. And yeah, what I've also seen is the other danger, which is that we throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We say, God, you know, I'm so disillusioned. And you know, we see this with the great resignation, right, around the world in the UK, of course, millions of people leaving jobs. So I'm, I hope some of it is, is for the right reasons, but I do think a lot of it is just almost that sense of the grass is green on the other side. And I don't think people are always being very thoughtful of why they're leaving. It's like a knee-jerk reaction to the, the pandemic. So I think what I'd say is there's a lot of things, and this is a key aspect of the book again, a lot of things we can do that we can bring more purpose, autonomy, and mastery out of our existing work. And I'd say if you're not happy at work, if anyone here is, is listening and saying, you know, I come at the end of the day and I don't feel very satisfied, 
I would employ some of the ideas in the book to reignite that motivation in our current jobs. First of all, because we're there now. And secondly, because I think every job exists because, because it helps and serves others in some way. What tends to happen is we tend to lose that sense of purpose because the day-to-day grind of modern work and the way that we cut and slice and dice our organizations and divisions and silos and targets and all this sort of very dehumanizing stuff, it tends to take that purpose away. It tends to drain it away. So instead, you know, going back to why am I here, I'm a big fan, for example, of this idea of a personal mission statement. Most of our organizations have mission statements. Very few of us have one. I'll give you mine as an example in my, my current role. I help organizations and leaders to reignite inner drive by writing, coaching, and consulting. So I help organizations and leaders to reignite inner drive by writing, coaching, and consulting. Maybe if it's, it's less than 20 words. But if you can re-express that, every day I think you can judge based on have I used my time, really focus on that personal mission statement. If I have, I've probably had a good day. If I haven't, I probably haven't. And so really using that as a line for us to think of what, we, what do we really care about? Who are we trying to make a difference in the world to and how? And so, yeah, I think there's a lot we can do working with our employers and our managers to bring that motivation back first. Mm. Yeah, I really like that. I like the, the framing of, of it as a personal mission statement and thinking about who you're making a difference to. Um, with the Leaders Plus Fellowship Program, which is a nine-month intervention where we support leaders with young children to continue to progress their careers we do exactly that we ask them to write a vision which is slightly different but also same sort of spirit and write down what difference you want to make what's going to be different as a result of your life essentially so i like that however what's your thinking about how you make it come alive so okay so you've taken some time out you've written a personal mission statement but then how do you make sure that purpose is alive in your day-to-day work and it's not your 10,000 emails that are going to dictate your day, but it is actually a personal mission statement? Yeah, so let's take that example of the emails, right? All of us have too many, maybe not 10,000, but you've got you know, hundreds of emails every day to manage. And I would often you know, feel very busy and important you know, leading an organization. And I've basically been in back-to-back meetings and answered dozens of emails. That's not really a good day. I hadn't taken my organization to a place it could have got to otherwise. So to me, that's a definition of a leader I mean, as well. And so the idea of really saying, look, how do I engineer my day to focus on the people that really matter to me? So if my personal mission statement is about helping, let's say I'm a sales director, and I'm really here to really make sure my customers have a really fulfilling time. You know, they're able to enjoy my product or service in the best way. Let's really focus our time on you know, what will make that customer happy, what will keep make them successful, how do I nurture them? What kind of services, products, offers? And I'm sure you do that with the leaders you work with, Rina, as well. If that you can have that laser-like focus, then if you answer that email, let, let's say you have you know half an hour with the customer that day on Zoom. Nowadays, a lot of times, instead of making it a maintenance call about you know he's upset or she's upset about this pricing change or this change in the, the program or the product, instead you say, look, how can we make this a better place for you in the world of work? What can I do to help you be more successful? What are you challenged with right now? How can I help? And it's really anchoring this on, you know, our success is their success. It's amazing, first of all, how much motivated you will feel as a leader and also how much more loyal and engaged they are at the same time. So this is not rocket science, but it's just really trying to take these lenses and use these pillars of purpose, autonomy, mastery in a very practical day in all our interactions. 
Yeah, very true. And the autonomy one is an interesting one as well. So you say in order to feel motivated, we need to have autonomy. Um, quite a few people listening here are middle managers and they are known to not have a lot of autonomy, but to have a lot of pressure from the top and a lot of pressure from the bottom. So what are your thoughts if someone is listening here and just doesn't feel that they have any autonomy and they're getting really disillusioned as a result? What would be your practical advice? Yes, yeah, so I'd say, I think a key thing is to figure out the sense of what we call guided autonomy. So we know that micromanagement is not great on one extreme. The other extreme, though, is if we're sort of Clint Eastwoods and running around and doing whatever we want, and that's anarchy, that's not very healthy either for ourselves, but also our organizations. We know that we're in organizations because we need to have some clarity on key organizational values, a strategy, all of these things. So a lot of that work is about this concept of like, what's that sweet spot or that, that middle ground where we have a level of autonomy, but it's guided. It's not complete chaos, but we feel able to achieve that. What I'd probably say the biggest tip I'd have to a middle manager in that example is to have a conversation with your boss about how disempowered you feel. Often I found that senior leaders don't understand what their processes are, are doing in terms of that. And I just take the, the NHS story the last few days, we were living in the UK. You know, so many doctors right now, retired doctors would love and go, would want to come and help do some of the vaccinations we do desperately with a booster, right? But Studies have shown, and you know, if you go onto the NHS website and try and register, it asks for 30 pages of details, references, your medical history for 30 years. It's ridiculous. So that's an example where, yes, you want some basic safeguards. In fact, you want to make sure this person has a, you know, has not got a criminal record, is not, you know, is safe to work with younger people, for example, all that stuff. But we don't need such a level of micromanagement as well. So a lot of it's just being aware and talking to you and just say, look, this is crazy. Do you realize how much time this is wasting of my time? We talked about teachers. I talked to a teacher in the book who was spending seven or eight hours a week entering data into spreadsheets. Now, the data was useful. It was about pupil attainment or achievement, but they shouldn't have been people spending that time. There should have been an app or maybe a volunteer could be helping them. A parent could have been helping them. So often I think our, our senior leaders are not aware of our world. Tell them how, why it's costing so much and give them some ideas. Help them co-create with them an, an example so maybe that teacher could say look i've heard about this app out there it costs 50 pounds but it will save you a thousand pounds of my salary over the year it doesn't how much time i'm spending on do you mind if i buy this and use it now going forward so that conversation is so important i think it's very true and i think there's the other side of the coin which is that many people who are listening are line managers and very often when we are line managers, we do want a bit of control because we are in the end accountable for the results. But there's so much to be said for just experimenting. We're just allowing people to that autonomy if, as long as they know what the outcomes are that they they need to achieve. Because if you do give them that autonomy, that also will free you up to an extent because you're not, you don't have to check on every single last thing that they're doing. But it is hard. It's obviously hard. It's not easy. My biggest tip there would be if you're a middle manager, and it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit like a parenting example, actually. So, yes, I would love my kids to be you know, good academically. But the way to do that is not to force them to drill them on tests, to get them with hours and hours of tutoring, getting them all the stuff, the nonsense we subject them to nowadays in a school system. That's not helpful because they're not determining the intermediate skills of, of having autonomy, of being curious, of working hard themselves, critical thinking, all of these things. We know those things are much more important in the long term. 
And the parallel, if you're a middle manager, is that you can, you know, in the short term, it can look like you're getting results by micromanaging, because yes, you get things back the way you want them, maybe on the time frames you wanted to, but you're not developing the muscle of your uh, manager to do things independent, to know what's right, to keep developing. You're immediately putting them on a plat, a sort of a ceiling where they can't grow beyond a certain point. And that's even more likely if they're a woman or a minority as well. And so, what's really important to focus on if you're a manager is. You know, talking in the book about nurturing. How do you help that person get to a place they wouldn't have got to otherwise? How do you help them see new patterns? How do you help them stay motivated in their work? How do you help build networks that meet new people they can gain more mastery over as well? So if you do that, two things happen. One is they're more independent, more confident. Over time, they're going to be better professionals, but also the outcomes will be better over the medium term as well. Yeah, and mastery is obviously one that you talk about in the book. A lot as well about the idea that I mean, do you, do you want to just explain what it is and how you can apply it in your own life? Yeah, so muscle. Yeah, so just to recap again of our intrinsic motivation, purpose—that sense of how what we do helps and serves others. Autonomy—that sense of being at the wheel of our lives, able to drive things we want to. Mastery is the third of these key intrinsic motivators, and it's about being the best version of ourselves we can be. And so that could be in our personal or our professional lives, and. A lot about mastery. What we know is that it's that seeing ourselves getting better and better every day that is deeply motivating. So Roger Federer, in tennis, has never played the perfect tennis set in his own mind, and he plays it not against Djokovic and Nadal. He plays it against himself, and it's that sense of getting better even day, even the sort of crazy high level he's at that is deeply motivating. So if you do that, and one of the things that it's it's really apparent now in modern work is that mastery is more and more about the human aspects what we do. Not the technical aspects. So, if you talk to an accountant nowadays, really, yes, they need to get the accounts on time each month and make sure they're accurate. But what matters much more is, are they able to work with the rest of the business or the organization to ensure that the numbers they're producing are being used intelligently by the management and leadership to to have better spending decisions or manage the company or organization better? So, a lot of mastery is that broader mastery to think about, and it's often what's not on our job description. Very true, and the research on career progression is also very clear that if you are doing things that aren't in your job description, you're more likely to progress and um, your career. So, with mastery, then, when you are in that leadership role and you've got young children, which means you have to leave at five thirty, otherwise you have to pay a ma- massive fine to the nursery. Can you give an example of when you have improved your mastery without you? You have done an MBA, so maybe you're not the right person to explain this. But how do you improve your mastery? How are you doing it at at the moment? Yeah, so so for example, I mean, I take the, the process of writing a book. Actually, it's my first time writing a nonfiction book. A hugely complicated process, right? It took about two years of not full time, but pretty intense periods. And I had a wonderful editor to work with at my publisher, Octopus Publishing, and. Claudia, who my editor, was a great nurturer to me in the sense that she wasn't trying to change what the book was trying to say or what was it about. I think she really took that vision of the book and tried to make the best version of the book it could be. And she gave me a lot of feedback, not on the content so much, but how to talk to an audience more directly, how to tell some of these stories better, how to keep the book relevant and fast-paced and engaging. And I went through five drafts. It was, it was honestly the last part, pretty grueling, and yeah, just just very tough as well. But I think what was to me what was motivating me was a sense that a I was just getting better as a writer. I could see draft by draft how it was getting better. But also, I thought, look, I'm asking someone in you know, a member of the public to read this book. It might take them 
10 hours or so. The Audible version is about uh, five hours. And if they're going to read or listen to this, you know, it better be the best version it can be. I have a responsibility as a writer to make sure this is fun, engaging, useful, and deeply practical to help people improve their own lives. So I think that's kind of what we, when we have that sort of mastery mindset, we're motivated by that sense of progress and becoming better. We don't worry about competition. I wasn't comparing myself to a different writer. I wasn't trying to do this because I was, you know, for status, any of this stuff. It was because I generally wanted this to be the best book I could write at this time. And so that's kind of a, a pure motivator in terms of mastery. Yeah. So someone listening to this who wants to use mastery to help them thrive more at work, probably it would be a good question to ask yourself, what do you want to be really good at? What What is it that you want to develop? And I love the idea that actually you don't have to go on a course. You can just ask someone for really good feedback and work on that particular thing with them. I even um, knew of a head teacher once who took his secretary everywhere. And I thought, I, I was a bit confused why that was. And then he told me, well, actually, she gives me feedback on every single one of my speeches and she's very tough. So she's on the way back in the car. She's really helping me develop. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And that was a head teacher. You know, you have some of those superstar head teachers that now you've written for education. So, you know, there's some that everyone thinks that they're the best things in sliced bread and they're very famous in the education world. He was one of them. But yet he had his secretary follow him on every single one of his speeches and he did many of them to give him feedback on how to get the message on better which I thought was such a brilliant example of that mastery and he clearly got a bit of he thrived on that learning which is a good thing anyways as a head teacher if you're still learning when the book came out I gave about 50 or 60 talks for you know over the last few months and yeah Michaela and my team had also played a similar role I think she was right there and that feedback culture is so important because especially for young people because we're so used to that you know, the immediacy of social media responses What's really important is timely and quick. You know, often this idea of an annual development or feedback round, a performance round, it's so out of date, right? We need to have that much faster, much more informal and multiple views on feedback, different people's perceptions. The key is not to get stuck, though, on comparing yourself. You know, if I was trying to compare myself to another writer, there's, there's, there's nowhere to go there because there are so many writers out there. What matters is at that stage in my life and my career, what was I trying to do? How can I write the best book I could write? And that's a much purer motivator as well. And we tend to then get really focused on improvement and learning and growth, not about comparison and competition. And comparison and competition, they can create so many problems in our lives from a sense of dissatisfaction to anxiety to that sense of feeling life is futile sometimes, as, as you said. Very true. I want to take you back to time when you work for eBay, because I was very intrigued when I read that on top of working at eBay, which I hear it's not, it's, not, it's not a job where you just lie back and enjoy the sun. You also were an entrepreneur and you started your own social innovation activity within eBay. Can you just tell me a bit more about this story and what you did and how you it all came about? Yeah, so eBay was growing in the UK. This was around 2005 and it was growing like crazy in the UK. What was happening as a result, of course, was that charity shops were starting to feel like you know people are now selling things and not giving to charity shops. And we have, you know, more charity shops than McDonald's in the UK. It's a big part of our landscape and a big way that charities raise money. And eBay, to its full credit, said, look, we don't want to be, you know, competing with this. Can we? But we have an online platform where we know prices are better. We have a global marketplace where if you sell something, anyone in the UK or the world can buy things. Why can't we help charities embrace eBay's 
as, as a platform and also we'll, we'll give back the fees so we donate this back to charities but also can we do it so that sellers on ebay anyone can sell their ipad or sofa and give anything up to 100 to the charity of their choice so it's really bold vision i came in as an entrepreneur, entrepreneur as you said set this all up it was incredibly complex and i think it worked really well because we had a fantastic ceo at the time meg whitman who was on her way out of the company she'd been there for a long time she wanted to leave a legacy and then a country director doug mccallum who believed very passionately in the platform and this idea and this vision of ebay being a real force for good in the world it raised it's now raised over a billion dollars around the world for non-profit which is something i'm very very proud of but for me the big lesson from all this was that it's all about leadership you know that ebay could have done this and it could have been like a nice thing on the website and a tick box and not much would have happened or it could really have taken off in the way it took off and what made the difference was that leaders in that organization in ebay at the time really wanted this to make a difference so you know we've had this you know perhaps some of your leaders are involved in this but this whole push towards esg you know towards a more sustainable way of doing business in many fields we've just had cop of course and the whole idea of this is that if we really want to make a difference in the world if you want to address issues like climate change or inequality or any of the challenges we're facing we need leaders to be motivated and to really see their purpose as building a better world as well as better organizations and so i think what we're learning about leadership is it it's a really really clear lever for motivation because leaders set the culture for so many other people if they're bought in if they believe in this and if they are themselves motivated they can have an enormous impact on others. Yeah, that's very true. And I think it's very interesting because you probably made a bigger difference just in terms of the money raised than if you had gone out of eBay and started up your own charity, which I'm sure you have done. I think you have started a charity or social enterprise, but that is is very interesting. But how did you do it? Did you do it before you had children or did you do it because you have a brilliant support at home and you didn't have to get home on time. But I guess I'm asking with the thing in my mind that lots of our listeners would love to do something like that, but they would be worried about volunteering for anything because they know their hours are limited due to childcare responsibilities. Yeah, so I think it's a really tricky tension in this. Right? First of all, just to say, I really agree with you. You don't have to go and set up a charity to make a difference in the world. You can do it in almost any job. You can do it through volunteering. You can be... A better friend to the people around you frankly you can be a better member of the community that you live in so you can go and knock on that old person that young older person's house check they're okay in the middle of a lockdown and that happened and we saw so many great acts of, of kindness and generosity that's as important to purpose as running a charity for example there's so many ways we can do it but there's always this bind in this and i think i'd, I'd look at it two ways i traveled a lot over the last 10 years running the charity that worked in india and Africa and Indonesia are very sort of obviously deprived parts of the world. I lived on a plane. I was always there, raised a lot of money out of America, where one of my the foundations I went to were based. I was living a typical week. I might be leaving Sunday night for the Delhi, arriving in the morning, spending five or six days, get back on a Saturday morning and be somewhat exhausted. Of course, fly economies, charity, and having to manage kids along the way. I didn't see them as much as I, I should have in my first 10 years. I do feel guilty about that sometimes, honestly. But I also think, look, you know, my kids are in a place where they have so many advantages in life. They live in the UK, they're in a, in a middle-class family, they go to good schools. I think for them to see that their dad tried to spend 10 years of his life doing something that had an impact on many other children that weren't as lucky as them, 
I'm not sure that's an excuse, but I hope it's a consolation for them. And I think it's very important for them to also realize that parents also need to find purpose in life and that that role modeling we, we create is so important, what we show them about what matters too. I couldn't agree more. So I've also interviewed some older guests for the podcast who were at the end of their professional career. And that's exactly what they said. They were very often women who have been the first in their generation to have a very senior role. And actually, they shared how guilty they were at first when the children were very young, but then how the children really didn't remember that. But the children were so proud of them and what they've done, which I think is a really good, good reminder. No, thanks. No, actually, I was just talking, actually, I was listening to Inder, Inder Nui this morning, actually, now on the podcast. She's the former CEO of Pepsi, and she was talking about this. And I think what she was saying, and I think that made a lot of sense, is that we do have this world now, though, that flexible remote working is so much easier. And, you know, I wish, and I don't wish the pandemic had happened at all, of course, but if it had happened, I wish it had happened five years earlier. Because a lot of the travel, I could have been in London and come back and seen my kids and so on, but there was a culture, the only way to get something done was to physically be there. And I think a balance of these things could have helped a lot. So I do hope that we can get a better world now post-pandemic where we can really achieve focus, we can try and solve our most challenging problems at work. But we can do that in a way that is allows us to be better parents also and take a little bit of advantage of that flexibility. Very true. Well said, well said. So if someone is listening to this and is thinking, I would like to feel a bit more purpose more motivation in my life what practical top two or three things could they do this week very practical stuff to get more purpose yeah so obviously we're coming up to new year's resolutions now and so on i, I would think about this idea of a personal mission statement first of all remember that idea of i help some you know, who am i helping to do what by doing what just try and write that down i think would be a, one really easy thing you can do and think about it keep improving it I think, am I spending my time at work around that, first of all? If, if I'm not, then think, okay, what can I do in my current work to really squeeze those elements of purpose, autonomy, mastery out more fully? Who do I need to talk to? Who, who would be allies in that? If I'm already a manager, a leader, can I bring my team along? If I need to get permission for my or approval of a manager, can I have that conversation? That's probably the first thing I'd say. If you feel you, or you have the conversation, feel that your, your manager or organization is not responding, that probably is a sign to go and look somewhere else gradually, but try and figure out where that might be and how could you make a difference in that, that new role. That's pretty on the professional side. On the personal side, I sort of ask, am I really being a great nurturer to the people around me? So in terms of the kids, my kids, if, for example, if I'm a parent or if my significant other, if I'm in a relationship or a friend or family member, am I spending time with them and really listening to them deeply? And do I really understand where they want to go? Or am I trying to impose my view on them of what I want them to do rather than unlocking their own motivation? How can we be a better nurture to them? What can I do to really achieve that in my, my life as well? Two very practical things. And then the last thing I would say would be other ways to open up your own ways of thinking, role models, influences. Where do I spend time? Am I going, you know, either, you know, I'm in my home office and I finish and I go straight to you know, my kids, or do I have a chance to talk to other people with different backgrounds, different perspectives? Can I put a podcast on as I walk, taking the train to work, for example? How do I keep learning and that idea of mastery again, keep developing, keep making new ideas and new connections? That's probably a third thing I'd say right now as well. The three things. Excellent. 
When we're coming towards the end of our podcast, is there anything else that you wanted to share with our listeners that we haven't talked about yet? I love having discussions around this, you know, around these questions of motivation, purpose, as you saw, both in our work and personal lives. Listeners can get in touch via Twitter. It's Sharath Jeevan underscore or Sharath Jeevan, my word on LinkedIn. I do a lot of writing and updates regularly on what's happening in the world of motivation and tips and tools and so on as well. My website is intrinsiclabs.com. And I work a lot with leaders around building these ideas into how they lead themselves and their organizations and finding intrinsics on Amazon and other independent bookstores. And there's a lot of wealth of information there to go deeper into all aspects of our lives, our work, our careers, but also our personal lives and lives of citizens as well. Mm, fantastic. And can you just say the website again? Intrinsic-labs.com. Perfect. Perfect. Fantastic. Um, Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for chatting to me it's been really insightful and i think again hopefully that will really help quite a few people who are listening to this while they're thinking about their new year's resolutions and thinking about future jobs and getting purpose so a big thank you thanks for such a pleasure really enjoyed the conversation thank you so much for listening today um i really thank you for being part of this journey as you know i do enjoy doing the podcast but Recently, a couple of you have got in touch with me to say that it's made a real difference to you and I appreciate that so, so much. So if you have any thoughts, feedback, suggestions, ideas, then you can find me on Twitter at VHefty, obviously on LinkedIn, Verena Hefty, and also tell us on at leaders underscore plus what you thought about it all. For those of you who want to connect, I guess in a more, not physical, but <laughs> if you want to connect with other people thinking about similar things, and listeners of this podcast then head over to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash events we have a couple of events coming up and also as you know the applications to the leaders plus fellowship program are about to open january if you want to make sure that you are in the loop about that then definitely do register interest on the website you'll get a brilliant brilliant senior leader mentor you get access to a wonderful support community of other parents who are ambitious about their careers you'll get time to think about your vision or as Charlotte called it personal mission statement you have sessions with your line manager with your partner if you happen to have one and so forth all designed to help you think big and do things slightly differently from your parents or grandparents generation so Thank you again for listening. It would be lovely to see you in some shape or form, be that on social media or on one of our events or even in the fellowship. And until next time, have a wonderful week.